All right, guys, let's go ahead and get started. Um, thank you uh, for coming. This is biblical biography. So we study a person from the Old Testament and then see what, um, yeah, what application they would have uh, for our lives today. So we're just going to study today the life of King Saul. King Saul, okay? And if you haven't gotten one of these handouts, I think Bill has some, uh, but these are just to be a helpful guide for sort of a roadmap for where we're going today. And again, I'm just a member here. My name is Brett Lewis. So if I haven't met you, um, yeah, we'd love to meet you after and glad we're all able to think about Saul together. Um, but before we get started, would somebody want to pray for us? Thank you. Father, we ask that you would give us listening ears, uh, make our hearts attentive to hear your word. Please bless your servant, Brett, as he opens the scriptures for us. May we receive a blessing as we look to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So uh, if you're going to, if you have a Bible, please open up. We're going to be mainly camping out in 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 15. That's going to be where we spend the bulk of our time because that's where we see, the, for the most part, that Saul is really on the throne. And that's the, the time when he is uh, most sort of studied and uh, a lot of attention is given to him in the book of Samuel. And so before we get to who the life of King Saul, we're gonna, we need to study the context of where Saul sort of comes from. And so Saul, uh, sorry, Samuel is written, the book of Samuel is written basically right after the book of Judges. And so does anyone remember how the book of Judges ended? The literally the last verse of Judges, what's happening? Dave? In Israel, there was no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Yes, exactly. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the people are running amok, right? There's a bunch of crazy stuff that happens in Judges. Things are not good, okay? And so then, uh, and so Israel was told to desire a king. Anyone know where? This is a very important passage for us as we study the life of Saul. Uh, what, what is God's king supposed to look like? Where do we find that? Anyone know in the Old Testament? Where do, where do we go? So it wasn't bad for Israel to desire a king. They just had to desire the right type of king. If you flip over to Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, there is outlined what the king of Israel is supposed to be like. So we're going to read this before we get into the life of Saul, because the Israelites would have known this. They should have known what type of king that they were looking for. So can anyone read for us Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20? When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book of a copy of this law, approved by the Le Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. 
Thank you. So just, uh, I want us to notice at least five things from this text that the king of Israel should be. So call them out if you've seen some. What should the king of Israel be like? What are we looking for? He should be an Israelite. Yes, he should be an Israelite. He's going to uh, be from Israel. He's not going to be a foreigner. What else? What is this king supposed to be? Anthony? Yes. And uh, are you talking about in verses 18 through 20? Yes, yeah, so what is, read, go ahead and read that. What is he supposed to do? There's a command that he's supposed to do this. To tell them to copy the book of instruction in yeah. the presence of the priests. Uh huh. And he's going to read it. Aloud daily. Yes. Yeah, he's going to read it every single day. And saying it to the citizens. Uh huh. The king is going to be consumed by God's, God's word, right? He's going to be carrying out God's laws. He's going to, be, he's going to realize that he is just the vice king, right? He's, he's under God. God is the ultimate king, and he's ruling in place of God and doing what God commands, okay? What else? He's not going to bring the people back to where? Egypt. Egypt. What happened to Egypt? That's where the Israelites were being slaves, and they came out of that. Yes, yeah, so don't, he's not going to lead the people into slavery. He's going to, uh, and also he's going to set his heart uh, for God. And so he's going to lead the nation in godliness, okay? He's going to rule in God's way, and the nation is then going to follow God like that. So the five things I got is he's going to be anointed or chosen by God. This will be God's guy, okay? And then he's going to be from Israel. He's going to keep the people free from slavery, verse 16. His heart is going to be set on God, verse 17. And he will rule under Yahweh's law, verses 18 through 20, okay? And so we are now looking for this type of king. So it's not bad when the Israelites ask for a king, but they need to ask for the right type of king, okay? And so, yeah, now continuing on. Uh, so we get to the book of Samuel, and here we have the, this guy, Saul, right? Saul, his name literally means the one asked for. People want Saul. Everybody wants Saul, okay? And so he's from the tribe of Benjamin, and he comes from money. This is in 1 Samuel 9.1, if you want to turn there and read some of these, these descriptors. 1 Samuel 9.1. So back to Samuel. And so you see Saul. There was a man uh, of Benjamin whose name, uh, who, sorry, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Bekorah, son of Alphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. This is Saul's dad. Uh, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people of Israel. Hold on, what did we just read in Deuteronomy 17? What's well, automatically a questionable thing? Yes, his wealth also. That's a good one. But then, literally, why is it so important about the, the height? What was, it, what, what was the descriptor in Deuteronomy 17? The king shall not be... Yes, lifted up above his people. From the get-go, we're like, come on, Israel. You're, this is the guy that you're going to go after? He's, like, he's already. It's this off-rip, right? It's not looking good for him, okay? Uh, but so the nation of Israel, though, has a different perspective. And so they're looking at this guy... And they're thinking, Saul, he's handsome, he's tall, right? He, he's got money, he comes from a good family, okay? And so to illustrate this point, I, I think, uh, I remember when I was playing uh, football in high school my senior year, I decided to play, 
And I feel like in high school athletics, it's very popular and common to sort of size up the other team before you, you go out there. So you, there was a, it was a big sort of like stare down kind of as you were going out. And I don't know if you guys have ever played sports. In basketball, it's maybe you have the tallest guy or something. Or in football, this guy's huge, just like monster. Or maybe in soccer warm-ups, he's like doing crazy tricks and stuff. Anyway, so you're kind of trying to gauge someone's ability based on what you do in warm-ups. And so I think Israel here is looking at Saul like that. And so for my team in high school, I remember there was this one guy who he, uh, his, his, I'll keep his name away, but his name was, we'll just call him Bob for our purposes. But he, he was just playing football for one year. So he was coming in from the basketball team, going to senior year, coming in from the basketball team. This dude was six foot five, about 245, ran sub four seven or something like that. Uh, could dunk pretty easily and so everyone's like oh yo Bob's coming to the team like this is crazy I can't believe it Bob's coming to the team we're gonna be so good our team had literally just we had played the year before I wasn't playing this time but the team made to the playoffs did pretty good but they played this team that got annihilated uh, there was like multiple NFL guys on this one high school team so it was they were really good uh, and so they got annihilated and then a bunch of people had graduated and so we were needing somebody to come in and take hold of our teams to give us some star power. So when Bob came in, we were like, oh, that's it. We can get behind Bob. He's going to take us. He's going to carry us. He's, oh my gosh, look at this guy. He's dunking all over the place. He's going to be catching touchdowns over everybody. This is crazy. And not only did we realize that, but the, the whole nation realized this. Uh, he, he started getting letters. And the reason our, we knew this was because our coach started telling us that we were getting, he was getting letters from Univers University of Alabama. So literally, as soon as they put his name into the database, they had 6'5", 245, plays basketball. Alabama was like, oh, we're, we want to watch this guy. We want to see how he does. There was other universities just seeing. And it wasn't an offer letter, but it was just, we're watching you, right? So he just attracted this sort of attention and gravitas towards him. And everyone was very excited as soon as he comes. And so similarly, Israel's in the same boat, okay? Israel is looking at Saul. Oh, he's so tall. He's mighty and strong and handsome. He's going to be the king that we need, okay? A king like the nations. And that's indeed what they asked for. 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. Can anyone read that for us? 1 Samuel 8, 5. 1 Samuel 8, 5. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Yes. Is this a good request or a bad request? And how do you know? Andrew? It depends. It depends on what? Uh, in Deuteronomy, it could be a, a good thing if they're requesting it of the Lord and he's, he's already given the guidelines for it. Yes, okay. So it, it wasn't wrong that Israel uh, asked for a king, but what specifically do they ask for? A king to judge us? Like all the nations. Like all the nations. Mm, Israel, I'm sorry. And if you if you're think I'm reading that wrong, you can just read verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected who? Me. They have rejected the Lord from being king over them. Uh, and so th this is showing us that, that when the people requested a king like the nations, they wanted to be just like the nations. And so this guy, Saul, comes in, and instead of being God's king, we have this tension of it looks like he's ruling for, or he's going to be a king like the nations. He's going to be a king that the people want. 
And so I think that we're going to see that w- because Saul does not follow the Lord, does not honor the Lord, our main idea, if you look at the thing, the paper, King Saul, the story of how he went from hero to zero. So a lot of people go from zero to hero, right? But he's going to go from hero to zero. So he's going to start out high, but end low. So number one, we already covered that setting scene, but uh, so in 1 Samuel chapter 9, uh, I'm, the way I'm going to do this is if you guys could just, there's verses here. So if, you, if I could just get three readers for this second section, and then we'll, we'll move on. So can anyone read 1 Samuel 9, 3 through 6? Just raise your hand. Uh, Nate, got it. Andrew, can you read 1 Samuel 9, 15 through 17? And then uh, lastly, 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 27. Can anyone read that? Thank you. Uh, you can, you'll read the number three next. Um, okay, so everyone turn 1 Samuel 3, sorry, 9, 3 through 6. Let's go ahead and read that. Thank you. So Saul's story starts with, we meet Saul and he's searching for some donkeys. Okay. It's not a very grand entrance. The Lord's control and providence is really over this whole thing because Saul is searching for some donkeys and on the way they're tired and his buddy who he took with him, his servant uh, says, Hey, there's a man of God in this, in this area. We should go to him and he's going to be able to tell us where these donkeys are. So Saul kind of meanders over there and they meet this man of God who just happens to be Samuel. And so Samuel is going to proclaim in verses 15 through 17 that Saul is going to be king. So let's go ahead and read 9, 15 through 17. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he who shall restrain my people. Thank you. So the day before Saul comes, Samuel is told by God, Hey, you're going to get meet this guy who's going to be from the tribe of Benjamin, and he's going to be the one who I want you to anoint as king. He's going to be God's choice for the king. Okay, he's going to be a king that is going to be like the people want, like the nations, okay? So we were being told to obey their request. And so then in 1 Samuel 9, God chooses Saul to be king. And we see in chapter 10, verse 7, that God is with Saul. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your, do what your hands finds to do, for God is with you. God is with Saul, okay? And so God is helping Saul and empowering Saul. And then in chapter uh, 10, verses 17 through 27, we're going to see that Saul is sort of proven over the whole kingdom. But it's not the way, it doesn't go down the way that we really expect it to. This guy Saul, okay? So let's read 10, 17 through 27. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord on this month, and 
And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Pause. So right here Samuel says, Israel, you want a king? I'm going to show the whole nation who God has for you, okay? And so they're about to do this practice of casting lots, which we're not exactly sure what that means, but it's some sort of, whether that was either tossing some dice or drawing sort of short straws, it was basically, uh, the purpose was that it had to be from God because there's no way that you could randomly choose so many things and this wouldn't be God-ordained. So God is orchestrating each and every lot to choose who he wants and to refine as he wants. So continue reading. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, among the people he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went man of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Thank you. So, what happens when we see the king Saul, the nation of Israel, if you're an Israelite? Oh, it's, it's Saul! Where's Saul? Where, where'd he go? Does he not know this is going on right now? Like, where, where could he possibly be? Saul, we've been casting lots for you. We started with the uh, nation of Israel, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Okay, Saul, you should at least be alert there. Then we went down to the clan of the Matrites. Oh, Saul, you should definitely be at least paying attention now. Okay, then we're going to go. Finally, Saul is chosen to be king. Saul, where are you? Where could you possibly be? The nation of Israel is gathered here. And you knew. Samuel, God's prophet, told you, Saul, you are going to be king, and you're hiding in the baggage. Doesn't that seem a little bit crazy that you could think that you would escape uh, the that you could escape God's God's hand uh, after He's told you this. You were looking for some donkeys, and then God's prophet came and told you Samuel's gonna, uh, Samuel told you you're going to be king, and then the whole nation of Israel gathers, and lot by lot, the the choices narrow down to exactly you, and you think you can run from God. It's not going to work, buddy. So what happens uh, then? You see later in that verses that uh, the Lord, the people ask the Lord, and the Lord's like. Saul's in the baggage. <laughs> uh, great, our king is hiding in the bags. Wow, I'm so happy. Uh, but then I think there's and there's almost this irony of the people when they see him. What do they notice? He's taller. This idea of height again. People are like, ooh, a king like the nations. Ooh, Saul's nice. Okay, maybe he's not so bad. He's he's pretty tall. He's, he looks pretty strong. I I would follow him, right? And so uh, they see this this guy. But some of the people are unsure. Verse 27, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. And again, I don't think this is here. They're not 
necessarily thinking that Saul is, maybe they were wondering Saul doesn't seem to be the greatest guy. His character seems to be a little bit messed up. But I think more they're doubting Yahweh. That's why they're worthless fellows. They, they doubt the Lord's control over their life, right? They don't want to follow Yahweh. And so this is kind of a picture of the nation of Israel that people are not following Yahweh even when it seems to be clear, okay? And that's why they're even asking for a king like the nations. And so Saul's thing, Saul's hiding is kind of like if you ever played hide-and-go-seek with a small child. <laughs> they, uh, they don't really seem to be very good. They just kind of, you say, okay, I'm going to start counting. Go! And then they just kind of run to the table and they're like right here. <laughs> uh, this table is not hiding you. Uh, I'm sorry, but you kind of act like you're not going. But really, it's pretty easy. So Saul does one of those and people are like, Saul, we got you. Come on, you're our king. And so he comes and then in verse 20, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 10, he, Samuel, uh, yeah, he says, Do you uh, see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid them up before the Lord. So what was he likely writing? Something similar to what passage? Deuteronomy 17. So something like that. We don't know exactly what he said, but it's something similar to Deuteronomy 17. So all there are guidelines for how you should live as a king. And so, <clears throat> yeah, this king, again, is supposed to be anointed or chosen by God. He's going to be from Israel. He's going to, be, he's going to free his people from slavery. He's going to have a heart set on God, and he's going to rule under Yahweh's law. And then we get to chapter 11. Chapters 11 and 12 aren't really on your paper as much. We're going to kind of breeze over that. But short, long story short, in chapter 11, Saul's sort of first act as king excuse me, is against Nahash the Ammonite. And his, his duty, you can see this, or sorry, Nahash's um, yeah, desire is to, you can see this in the verse 2, chapter 11, verse 2 at the end, is to bring disgrace on all Israel. Okay, Nahash wants to disgrace God's people. And so God takes that seriously, and the Spirit of God, in verse 6 of chapter 11, rushes upon Saul. And this word rush is the same word anyone else know that was used for someone else? It was a judge? Yes, Samson. This is the same word, and it's only used three times in the Hebrew Bible, okay? And so this same word is bringing back, drawing back memories and pictures of Samson. So this crazy sort of feeling of, of presence of God, strengthening God's man to do something that is only possible with God. And so Saul is seen as God's king. He's got God's power behind him. God is backing him. And so Saul saves the men of Jabesh. He saves the men of Jabesh, and they love him for it. They are super thankful. And so Saul is sort of this larger-than-life figure, right? It's King Saul, King Saul, woo, King Saul, we got Saul, Saul, Saul. If he can't do it, no one can. They're, they're loving Saul, right? And so, yeah, he's maybe trending on Twitter and all the headlines, and everyone's talking about, oh my gosh, we finally got a king, and he defeated the man, or uh, he defended the men at Jabesh from bringing disgrace on all Israel. Saul, he did it. And so the nation thought they had what they needed. And then right after this, in verse, uh, verses 12 through 15, the kingdom is renewed. The kingdom is renewed. And so, it's, remember, it's not the kingdom isn't established in verses 12 through 15. If you're looking at your Bibles of chapter 11, it might say the kingdom is renewed as a subheading. And so that's because I think that they're renewing their commitment to Yahweh as king, right? They've got a king, now they need to renew their commitment to Yahweh as the true king, the one through whom all of this happened, right? And so they are going back to following Yahweh. 
And right after this, in chapter 12, Samuel says, goodbye, okay? Israel, I'm going to pray for you. I love you guys, but uh, yeah, you guys are kind of messed up and you bring some sin to mind. But he says, follow the Lord. Fear the Lord and you will be okay. If you and your, if you and your people are talking to the king, fear the Lord, you guys will be just okay. And then we get to 1 Samuel 13. Everyone turn to 1 Samuel 13. Saul fights the Philistines is the heading. And so remember, Saul is on a possibly like a high, right? He's just, he's doing great. Uh, King Saul, woo, Saul, Saul, Saul. And he's just been told, fear the Lord. All right, got it. Okay. Uh, and they are, the Philistines are threatening to fight him. And then let's read verses 8 through 14. You can read. So we're going to start our next section. I just need two readers, someone to read 1 Samuel 13, 8 through 14. Dave, thank you. And then someone to read 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 11. Thank you. You <coughs> seven days the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Thank you. <clears throat> so, in back in chapter 13, verse 6, we see that the men of Israel were in trouble. They knew that they were hard-pressed. The Philistines are coming. And so Saul, taking matters into his own hands, he's told by Samuel, you got to wait seven days, and then I'll come and I'll show you what to do, okay? And this is going to be seen as not Samuel just offering a sacrifice, but it's going to be Samuel listening to the Lord, or sorry, giving the word of the Lord. So Saul's waiting for the Lord to intervene in this situation. But what does Saul do? He's on the seventh day, and what does he do? He bases his decision on what he sees and not on what God has said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he disobeys God. And so, do you guys think it was wrong for Saul to, to offer this sacrifice? He offers a sacrifice. Remember, he's trying to get God's help and basically to win the war. He knows he's hard-pressed. Is it wrong for him to offer this sacrifice? What do you think? He, he waited seven days. What's going on? A job that was open for the Levites. Okay, so maybe it was a priestly duty. Saul is not supposed to do this. Yeah. What's the irony in verse 10? What happens as soon as he does it? Samuel is here. <laughs> so you're on the seventh day. You didn't even wait to the end of the seventh day. Come on, man. What are you doing? You're taking matters into your own hand. God didn't fail you, right? Samuel's right here. But the, the point of this is not that Saul just needed to wait. In fact, one commentator, his name is Dale Ralph Davis. He has a, a good sort of summary of what happens. God's prophet is really speaking for God. And so he says, this is Dale Ralph Davis, he says of this passage, God's prophet would give him God's guidance for the Philistine war. Samuel was the bearer of Yahweh's word. And Saul's task was to wait for it. Wait for God's word. 
Instead, he proceeded without it. He did not wait for God's word. For Saul, uh, Saul, sacrificial ritual was essential. Ritual is essential. I got to do something. But prophetic direction, dispensable. I don't need God's direction. I'm just going to try and do this thing, but I do not need God to direct me. Okay? And so that's what happens here in 1 Samuel 13. And what's the result? You see this in verses 13 through 14 of 1 Samuel 13. What happens? Anyone know? Yeah, Saul, now the Lord's not going to work for you. Okay, you don't want to wait for the Lord? Well, guess what? The Lord does not need you. Okay, he's, in fact, he's chosen another king. And what's the king he's chosen like? Verse 14. The Lord has sought out a man after his own what? His own heart. Yeah. Saul, I don't need you. In fact, I'm going to rule with a king who's after my own heart. Okay, You're, he's going to rule in the principles of Deuteronomy 17. And I've got him already, Saul. Your time is done. And so, yeah, then uh, in chapter 14, uh, Saul defeats the Philistines. Um, but we see that in verse 23 of 14, chapter 14, verse 23, it's really Yahweh who saves them. And it is done a lot through, anyone know? The heading in your Bible for chapter 14 reveals it. Jonathan. We see here, Jonathan is, it's almost, it's just a sad effect, right? Saul's sin, think about this, Saul's sin is so grievous. Saul is not only removed from kingship, but what was promised in chapter 13, his uh, people after him would not be kings either. But Jonathan is looking like a great king. He takes initiative. He does things that Saul shouldn't do, right? Or sorry, doesn't do. He does things that Saul doesn't do. And so the nation of Israel is like, Saul, you messed up, man. You look, you were looking so good. And your son is awesome. He was going to be a great king after you too. But your sin, you, you didn't follow the Lord. You didn't wait for God's direction. And now your sin has brought punishment on you and your house, right? And so it's this ironic, sad effect that Saul's son even, is, who's looking like a great king, is also not going to reign. And so in verse 14, ver, uh, chapter 14, verse 23, we see, it says, So the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel that day. Okay, and so God's saving his people, right? He's going to do things. He's still working, but he's, gonna, he's got someone else than Saul. Okay, and then we get to chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. So are you reading that for us? Okay, let's all turn there. Give us a second. 15, 1 through 11. We're going to pay attention here, and this is probably going to bring up some questions. So, yes, invite questions, okay? And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into lame, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and, laid, and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag 
and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Amen. Okay, what questions might you have? <laughs> I, there's probably none for that, right? That was easy. Yes. Oh, I mean, one, one about Saul. Why would God make somebody Saul, but then he regrets God do do-overs? Yes. What is it? What yeah. What does it mean that God regrets? What do you guys think? How does God regret? Does that mean he changed? Right? Because normally when you regret something, I wish I didn't do that. If I had been all-knowing, I wouldn't have done that. Right? That's what regret means to us. So how does God regret? I guess I thought of it in terms of him being sorrowful over something that happened. Like, similar language with the flood, I think, that he was sorry that he created man. But clearly not that he would have changed what he did. Yes, okay, so you're, you're teasing out a little bit. There's a distinction between God's regret and our regret, right? So it's not the same thing, but there's some sort of sorrow that we're getting. Okay, what else? What else do you guys think? It's helping us understand the heart of God. Okay. Yeah, he's not neutral, but this, this breaks his heart. Yes. Even though he's all-knowing. Yes, yes. He is broken by the sin. Nate? Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah, for the Lord hates our sin. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though he's aware that um, that Saul was going to sin, that doesn't make the, the, the act of the sin any more palatable for him. Mm -hmm. He knew Saul was going to do what he was going to do, but still seeing his servant sin still broke his heart. So, I guess that might be what the regret is referring to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even, it, that's such a good point, and it, God's prophet also, what happens to God's prophet? What happens to Samuel? What does it say? Verse, uh, verse 11 at the end. Samuel was what? Angry. Angry and he did what all night? Cried. He cried. He is so grieved by sin. God is so grieved by it. And Samuel, God's prophet, is so grieved by sin. There is this hatred of sin among God's people. We cannot be in sin. Okay, that is, It's grievous. Samuel cries all night. It grieves him to his very core, that the sin uh, that is in Israel Okay, and in Saul. And so, yeah, you guys, I think, did a good job of answering that. You, I do not think that God changed in his character, right? The Lord our God does not change, okay? And you can even look in chapter 15. I kind of set you guys up to possibly be answered later by the text, verses 28 through 29 of chapter 15. It says, And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of uh, Israel will not lie. Sorry, yeah. The, also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man, this is talking about God, that he should have regret. So it's, it's not the same regret. So he doesn't regret in that he didn't know, right? He's just grieved over, over sin. And so this, yeah, this is showing us that God, God's nature towards sin I think one possible, this is an analogy, so all analogies break down. But one, uh, yeah, one way we could think about this is I want you guys all to imagine that you are five again. 
and your mom or your dad tells you that you need to take out the, or sorry, do the dishes uh, before bed tonight, okay? And so you're like, cool, I know it, I gotta do the dishes before bed tonight. If I do that, I'll be good. Dad sees you, I love you, son or daughter, uh, you're doing great, you are awesome, and you are the, like just killing the game, like you are my favorite, right? You're the only child, so you're the favorite. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so you, you are, you, your relationship is great. But then you get tired, and you don't do the dishes, and you forget, and then you wake up, and oh no, the dishes are not done. Uh, I'm sorry, Dad, and Dad says, or Mom says, uh, son or daughter, I am very disappointed with you, right? It would be strange for you to say, Mom or Dad, you've changed, what happened, right? That would make no sense. It's, God, God did not change, the Mom or Dad, in this case, didn't change. What changed was your behavior, right? And that changed your relationship, right? Uh, to what was once good and uh, yeah God was now now regrets that you have sinned like this not that God was surprised right uh, he, he left it up to Saul to follow him but because of sin because of Israel's failure to do the dishes in this case uh, they, that has changed their relationship and now God is so uh, sorrowful and so grieved that he regrets making Saul and I don't want us to get too theological that we miss what is actually happening, right? So yes, theology is important and we need to make sure that, okay, God has not changed, we got that, good. But we need to press into this, this idea of God using the word regret when someone sins, right? That it grieves him so much that he regrets making him. That's the word he uses, okay? So this is what's, um, yeah, this, this is language that helps, it's human language that helps us understand the heart of God. And so we need to understand this and realize this and press into this. This is what uh, God's reaction to sin is. Yeah, and so, yeah, similarly, when we grieve God, uh, it's, a, it's a deep grievance, right? We uh, grieve God deeply so much that he uses the word regret. And so this is, yeah, going to help us understand who our God is. So we'll come back to that in theological reflections. But uh, for now, let's go ahead and read 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. Did I ask anyone to read that? Can someone read that? 22 through 23 or 15? Andrea, thank you. And Samuel said, has the, Lord as great, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and, I, and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Amen. What does Samuel say here? Someone summarize it for us. Dave? Mm-hmm. Yep. Saul, so you've just been doing dry duties, and that is not what the Lord wants, right? He doesn't. Yep. In regard to that, I was thinking just last night I was reading uh-huh. with my kids out of First Kings when Solomon's dedicating the temple, and one of the things he's asking God for is, Lord, when we offer sacrifices in this place, receive them. It, it's, it's clear to him this isn't a given. Sacrifice does not equal accepted sacrifice, and the act of doing the sacrifice is meaningless if God isn't present. So, mm-hmm. I, I love how you summarize it. God does not want empty sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so good. <clears throat> and so, yeah, we're going to see that Saul's transition number four, Saul isn't the Lord's anointed. He's gone from full-blown hero to now zero. 
sad. Don't do it. Okay. Uh, Saul is offering up empty sacrifices. The Lord has regretted that he's made Saul. And uh, we're just going to see, uh, can anyone read 20, 33, chapter 20, verse 33 of 1 Samuel, and then 22, 19? Uh, 20, 33, and then 22, 19? Can anyone get that? 22, 19. Nate, thank you. So let's turn there, everyone, 20, 33 of 1 Samuel. And this is just going to show us how far gone Samuel, or sorry, how far down the path of uh, sin that Samuel has now gone. It's quite sad, actually. Or sorry, Saul is now gone, not Samuel. Um, yep, so 20, 33. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Whoa, what? <laughs> Saul just hurled a spear at who? <laughs> Who's Jonathan again? His son. His son? Saul trying to kill his son? He's so angry that David is anointed that he literally hurls a spear at his son. Can you imagine that? Saul, it's not looking good. All right, and then 2130, uh, sorry, Yep. Saul has now killed an entire group of God's priests. Saul, it's not looking good. And then in 1 Samuel 28, and remember what we just read in 15, 22, uh, for, what does it say? For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Well, 1 Samuel 28, what is Saul now doing? He's consulting a necromancer, basically someone who's trying to get in contact with the dead. He's practicing witchcraft, right? And so we see that even Saul's own uh, words, what happened was prophesied, your rebellion is as divination. That was true, Saul, because now you're doing it and you're trying to figure out how to win a battle again. And then in 1 Samuel 31, verses 4 and 5, we see Saul is unwilling to be killed. He doesn't want to be sort of mocked by uh, his his um, people who beat him in battle. And so Saul says, I'll read verse 31, sorry, sorry, 1 Samuel 31, verses 4 and 5. 1 Samuel 31, verses 4 and 5. It says, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not do it, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And immediately preceding these verses, Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul, are put to death. Also, Saul's line is now dead, and now Saul kills himself. He falls on his own sword so that he won't be mistreated by the Philistines. And so, yeah, it's really quite sad. The life of Saul ends with what could have been so great. He had so much potential. He was the first king, and he went from hero to zero. Uh, and so any questions on the life of Saul before we get to the theological reflections? Life of Saul. I think he's just he's he's angry. He does he's it's not he's not submitting to the Lord, um, and so he's he's going against God's plan. Uh, it's so hard for him to accept that he's not the the anointed. So, yeah. Well, and specifically, they sheltered David and his men, mm -hmm. and so he was mad at them for for doing that. Yeah, and so he's just he's very angered that David is on the throne. And so he, that's why he kills his son, almost or tries to kill his son. He kills a city of priests. He's just, he cannot handle that he is not God's chosen man. Yeah. yeah. His, uh, 
his destruction of Nob is better than his destruction of the Amalekites. Uh, he, yeah. He puts to death everybody. <laughs> puts to death the livestock for his own honor, right? mm-hmm. sparing the livestock for God. Yeah. Any other questions on Saul's life? Or questions in general about what we read? No, okay, let's get to theological reflections. The first one I think that we can reflect on and really dig deep into is that our God is a God who is grieved by sin. He is grieved by sin. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Right? Our God is a holy God, and he cannot tolerate sin. Right? It grieves him to be in the presence of sin. Uh, and so, yeah, number two, God does not want empty sacrifices. We saw this with Saul. It's not good for us to just offer up sacrifices, right, to do vain things. And we've seen this throughout the whole Bible, right, of Cain and Abel and the, all the, throughout the whole thing. We, he doesn't, God does not want your empty sacrifices, right? He wants your, your heart, your obedience, okay? Oh, I meant to say this with the first one. So uh, with the first one, God is grieved by sin. This is why... This is building us up and, and tracing us through the Bible story of why God had to send Christ, right? Because God is so grieved by sin. He wants to be known by his people, right? He keeps making avenues to be known by his people through the tabernacle and the temple, right? God, come and know me, Israel. But they are, they can't, they are just stuck in their sin, okay? And so then this is going to lead to ultimately Christ having to come, who's going to allow uh, yeah, the bri- uh, sort of a bridge to be made that now people will be able to dwell with God again. There will be, he's going to make a way for people to be made clean again through Christ, okay? And again, God does not want empty sacrifices. Number three, and I think this is just evident throughout all of chapters 8 through 15 and a lot of the like, rest of the Bible, but especially these chapters, God's plans always come to pass. Saul, you thought you could go against it. And imagine how just upsetting and maddening it would be for Saul. He's literally been made king, so he's got power as a king, right? David, we're going to see next week David, the life of David. And he's gonna, he flees from uh, King Saul because Saul has actual military power. But Saul is helpless. He cannot get the anointing back. He cannot. Everything that he does is as a ticking time bomb, right? He's just buying his time out, but there's nothing he can do. God's plans always come to pass. Our God is always in control. He is never lacking for anything. He wasn't surprised when Saul was king and he's like, oh man, I really wish I hadn't given that kingship to you because I really needed David to do it. He protects David and David is king after him. And then the line line of promise goes through David to ultimately to Christ. And then number four... I cited Deuteronomy 17 with this one. And this is just, Saul helps us desire a godly king. Someone who's going to lead righteously. Someone who's going to judge according to God's law. Who's going to lead the people away from sin and rebellion and towards God. And so this points us to Christ, right? That uh, Saul helps us to uh, desire a godly king. One who's going to come and he's going to be after the the Lord's heart, right? He's going to, the Lord is going to desire him to lead his people. And he's going to rule in a godly way. Right? He's going to lead the people as God's vice ruler to God. Okay. So any other theological reflections you guys thought of when reading these, these texts in 1 Samuel? Theological reflections? What does this tell us about God? How does this point us to Christ? One, I'm not sure if this is a theological reflection or an application, but one of the things that strikes me about Saul's life is that he starts out seemingly very humble. Mm-hmm. Um, tribes when they're all gathered he's hiding among the bags 
And you could look at that and say, oh, you know, look how look how humble Saul is. Um, one of the things in, in 1 Samuel 17 that struck me um, was Samuel says, though you're little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And I just it seems like it's teasing out this idea. There's a, there's a sense of humility that's like right and proper before the Lord. There's also a sense of humility that's that's sort of a it's focused on yourself, sort of an insecurity and, and not failure to rely on the Lord. And it seems like that's sort of what Samuel's getting at here is that this this humility and this this kind of yeah his looking at himself and not not really trusting the Lord is actually unhelpful and it's actually not it betrays a lack of reliance and faith and trust in the Lord. Um, and so just distinguishing between a, a godly form of humility that relies on the Lord and a worldly form of, of sort of self-doubt and humility that, that's just focused on yourself and other people's opinions. Uh, it's something, something that strikes me from his life. I, I don't know if that counts as theological, but... Russell, you want to you come up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's, that's really good. Um, yeah, that was... Uh, I, it's in a, one of the Puritans I've been reading, Virgil of Christian Contentment, um, talks about that as like Saul is in the beginning, he is little in his own eyes, and so when people don't support him, in chapter uh, 10, I believe it was, I have to go look, but when he's anointed king, and the people are like, some people are like, nah, we don't want him as king, he doesn't really do anything. But then later, even for you to, to say anything about David, right? Why does David have to be killed, Jonathan asked, and then Saul hurls a spear at him, right? He's become so big in his own eyes, he doesn't fear the Lord, right? Because that's what the command that Samuel gave him Fear the Lord and you'll be okay. But he did not fear the Lord. And so he became big. And any sort of challenge to that, he was, his, his pride, his hubris was so large that he couldn't tolerate that. That's good. Anything else? Thank you, just oh, you can go next. Um, you just thinking about how his sin affected Jonathan and just like our sin doesn't just affect us. It has consequences that affect other mm-hmm. people too. And just, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's so sad, right? That, this guy, Jonathan, who he's, he's just so, like, he seems to be honestly, like, humble-hearted and fighting and doing things that are for the Lord and standing up for, and doing things that Saul is honestly passive in ways, and Jonathan is kind of, like, actually helping Saul. And if you read chapter 14, the battle that, uh, it says Jonathan defeats the Philistines, but who gets credit for that is Saul. <laughs> um, it's so sad because, like, it's just like, Saul, your sin, man. Look at who was the Lord was possibly going to bless the nation of Israel with. You're going to say something? So I think it's interesting that Israel had demanded basically a king, and Samuel tries to warn them like against this, and so then they're given Saul, which goes to show like we we think we can control things, mm-hmm. and then it's and God, it's almost like God was like, yeah, here's a king, and yes, he did anoint him, but I think it was, it, it had they just followed God and listened, then it would have been Mm-hmm. Yeah. That you maybe want to say something that I'm gonna say for next week. Uh, but yeah, that's uh really good. Yeah. First Samuel two, by the way, if you want to prepare for this class. First Samuel two uh talks about Hannah's song. That song, I'm just gonna say this, if you want to read that, that's gonna be helpful for preparing and reading the book of Samuel in general, right? So Hannah's song, there's some role reversals and we're gonna come back to why it was so important that Saul is so tall, okay? Uh, Saul, so remember, Saul is tall, okay? Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, uh, just remember that. Yeah, Nate? Um, one thing, I guess, to, to, to highlight on the whole regret concept is just about how, like, applicable Saul's story is for us. 
I mean, and, uh, what happens when you let your pride, your arrogance, and there's a little commandment how far you can fall without him. So I, I just, the way I envision God as this story is unfurling, he knows how this is going to, you know, aid his people for generations. Mm-hmm. To serve as an example of just what happens when you do not follow me and obey me. So that's the beauty of the Lord's you know, sovereignty is that mm-hmm. as this is going on, the regret was only in the sin, not that it happened because he knew that years later you'd be up in talking and went folk about it kind of thing. So I think it's a really uh, amazing element about the Lord his, yeah. and his vision. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Uh, okay. Any other thing? We, uh, if you have like kind of like theological reflection slash applications, we can, we're going to, I'll pause for that stuff too at the end. So if you have something you're thinking about it, just save it. We'll get to it in a second. So for applications, I really wanted to hear, yeah, some of what you guys have already been sharing. If you have more, love to hear that. I came up with um, two uh, from this text, but certainly not all of them. So yeah, uh, you can look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 details and talks about two different types of repentance. Two different types of repentance. Okay, and so we're going to see that there is godly repentance and worldly repentance. Uh, and so just for the sake of time, I won't read that, but you can look at 2 Corinthians 7 for that. But it's interesting to note, uh, in, for, as far as we think about this and how what kind of type of repentance characterizes us, in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul is called out, he blame shifts to the people, right? He said, they did it. And uh, like th- this is the scene where he's supposed to devote everything to destruction, right? And he says, oh, the people, they kept it. So you're the king. And then it's like, oh, well, I just, the people. And, and then in verse 31, he's basically, he's like, I'm sorry, can you just go tell everyone that it's okay and that I was, I was good and I did it and I'm good? Uh, he blame shifts and then he just tries to save face, right? That's Saul's sort of repentance, right? It's not very really godly re- repentance, right? That seems to be a worldly repentance. Repentance that's really just concerned with what other people think about me and tries to shift blame. And then when it finally does apologize, it's really just sorry for the consequences of it, Okay. And so we should, as we apply this to our lives, let's, let's have godly repentance. Let's be uh, repentant to the core and be grieved by our sin as God is, that it would do as Samuel, it did to Samuel and would make us cry all night, but that we would repent and turn to God, okay? Yeah, and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, knowing that we can come before him and that he will forgive us if we truly repent. And then number two, empty religion is not pleasing to God. Empty religion is not pleasing to God. You can take, get this from chapter 15, verse 22 of 1 Samuel. Uh, yeah, if you go to church, if God does not delight in empty sacrifices, okay? If you go to church, don't come just so that other people will see you, right? You should be going to know and love God more, to obey Him and to fellowship with His people. And so just two questions I want to leave you guys with uh, to think about today and uh, yeah, at lunch or whatever, at, throughout the week or whatever. Uh, for number one, for the worldly repentance versus godly repentance, which sort of repentance do you think categorizes you? Are you usually worldly repentant or are you, uh, do you show godly repentance? Are you blame shifting and trying to save face or are you grieved by your sin? Do you cry all night for it? And then number two, why are you at Delray Baptist Church right now? Why are you here? Is it to know and to love God more or is it to offer up empty things so you can further your own kingdom? Okay, so any, yeah, I'd love to talk with those questions about you. Uh, but any other applications that you guys thought of from our text? Sometimes when uh, God puts something hard in, in my life, 
I know, like mentally I know he's he he has bigger purposes. He's working on my pride. He's working on my sin. Even though my focus may be something more temporal, I think Saul is just a great reminder of how important those um, those objectives that God has are. I mean, just just a reminder of how how dangerous and how far and how fast that that pride and that sin will just you know take you down and lead you down a road that you didn't even mm-hmm. you, you couldn't even imagine yourself in the end. Of, of yeah, yeah. Zach, you going to say something? Yeah, I think um, Saul helps us learn that reminding ourselves of our dependence on God helps us avoid being swallowed up by our pride. Amen. Yeah, focus on Him. Uh, okay, as we conclude, I'd love, love to talk with you guys more if you have any questions. But uh, just in conclusion, uh, bring it back to my friend of the football team. Uh, I think this goes well with our story of here to zero. Uh, my friend, sadly, was not that good. <laughs> he was pretty bad. <laughs> there was, it was the hype lasted for about all of a week, and then it was like, uh, actually, we're gonna Alabama's looking at other things, and we're going other ways, right? And so it was this sad sort of um, depressing thing. And so I think that this, similarly to the story of Saul, brings us to desire a godly king. We are desiring Christ by the end, who will come and rule his people in God's way. Okay, and so yeah, I would uh, just encourage you guys to think through that and see how Saul points us to Christ. Uh, I'll pray, and then we will dismiss. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time. We ask that you would help us, our hearts now as we prepare to hear your word. Uh, we pray that you would help us to yeah, exhibit godly repentance, that we would be grieved by sin as you are grieved by sin, and that we would flee to Christ as our Savior. And we also pray, Lord, that you would help us to not uh, be doing things for empty religious purposes, but that we would have hearts that are submitted to your word and desiring to know you more. Uh, Lord, we pray for Garrett as he prepares to preach and just ask that you would be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.